Well, let me read to you. Um, because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bible to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 1 through 7 for a second time this morning. I failed to finish my sermon last week. Got halfway through, so we'll, we'll recap and then, and, then, and then finish it off this week as we consider the church and her initial love. Revelation 2, beginning in verse 1. Write to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Thus says the one who, ha- who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, and your endurance. I know that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and have found them to be liars. I know that you have persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name and have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet you do have this. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Father, with your word open before us, uh, we have come to worship you. We have come to seek your face. We have come to listen to what the Spirit is saying to us as a church family. We've come to read what Christ has commanded John to write, that we might see your glory, love your glory, and be changed by it. So, Father, we pray for soft hearts. We pray that Satan would not be allowed to pluck the word out of our hearts this morning. We pray that the the trials of life, the difficulties we're facing, and the the tensions we're feeling would not choke out the word. We pray that the cares of this world, the distractions of all the advertisements and all the glitz and glamour and temporary pleasures that this world offers us, we pray that none of that would distract and choke out the word. We pray rather that we would receive this word and that it would bear fruit in our lives, 30, 60, and 100 fold. Only you can soften a hard heart. Only you can raise the dead. Only you can make us hear this word and me preach this word in any way that will have any true spiritual effect. So we ask you, Father, in the name of Jesus, your son, to answer our prayer and to meet us here and change us. Whether from non-Christian to Christian or whether loveless Christian to loving Christian or growing as a Christian. Help us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. There are always people, there are always those who think they know better. Not even God can correct these type of people. Saul thought he knew how to trust God. God told Saul, King Saul, the first king of Israel, he told him very very simply, very clearly, very straightforwardly, I want you to go to Amalek, I want you to go conquer that people, and I want you to kill all the people. I want you to kill all the livestock, all the cattle, destroy all of it. Keep nothing. Just destroy all of it. Simple, clear command. Saul goes there, destroys the Malachites, 
and does not destroy all the livestock, but keeps some of it. Now, livestock back then is money, okay? So you can say he keeps some of the money and keeps the livestock. I want to offer it to God is what he says. When Samuel says, hey, why don't you do what God said? Oh, I kept the money because I'm going to offer it to God. I'm, yeah, I got this money. I'm disobeying God with the way I got this money. But now that I got the money, I'm going to I'm going to give it to charity. I'm going to give it to spread the gospel. That's how we might say it today. And so um, Samuel very famously says, does God delight in obedience or in sacrifice more than obedience? What does he delight in more, obedience or sacrifice? Your sacrifice is disobedience. And you cannot define God's commands for, for yourself. God defines what he says. He told you what to do. You have not done it. And even then, Saul fake repented. Please, Samuel, don't leave me. Now he repented. And he was looking at the, the, the soldiers and he was seeing that Samuel leaving Saul in front of the soldiers would be embarrassing. Don't leave me. And he didn't really care about disobeying God and repenting before God. He cared about how it looked to his soldiers. It was a fake repentance. It was show. Even in his, even in him being corrected and him looking like he was corrected, he still couldn't be corrected. He still didn't think he was wrong. There are some people who just can't be corrected. And we all fall into that category from time to time, don't we? Then the next king after King Saul was, you know who he is? Who was he? For those of you who know. King David. King David was also a sinful man. Um, he loved God, but he sinned, even some might argue a greater sin. So God took his spirit away from King Saul, his spirit to empower him to be the king of his people, took that spirit and power of kingship away from Saul and gave it to David before David became king. David becomes king, grows in power, worships God, um, is a great leader, gets blinded by his power a little bit, goes through a season of dullness in his soul, sees a beautiful woman on a rooftop, lusts after her, calls her over, sleeps with her, and um, commits adultery, causes her to commit adultery, and then arranges to and conspires to kill her husband so that he could have her, and he could cover up his sin. And so God calls David, just like he called Saul, to repentance. Instead of using Samuel, he now sends Nathan to call David to repentance. Now, David's response is not a fake repentance. It's a real repentance. He falls on his face and says, I have sinned against the Lord. I've sinned against the Lord. Will the Lord forgive me? And, and, and Nathan pronounces forgiveness for David. And David stands forgiven. So much so that he writes in Psalm 32, 11, Psalm 32 one, Blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven, whose iniquity is covered. They're, they're happy. They're, they're blessed. They're favored by God. And David found it in the promise and kindness of God through faith and repentance. He, in other words, they were both confronted. They were both called to repent. One could not be corrected because he was too arrogant to do it. And so God took his spirit of empowering him to be the king and light of Israel, so to speak, took that away from him, took the spirit away from him and gave it to David. Now, David very famously prays in Psalm 51, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. There's a little King James still in me, right? Thy. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. He's not saying lose your salvation. If you're justified, Old Testament or New Testament, you can't not be justified. Those who he justified, he will be glorified. And so it wasn't about losing his justification, his right standing before God. It was, don't take your Holy Spirit, the kingship from me. Your Holy Spirit who empowers me to lead your great people to be the light of the world. 
Don't take that from me. And God didn't take it from him as David repented and trusted in God. Well, when we get here to Revelation, we have a very clear command. The main command of this text is crystal clear. It's said twice in Revelation 2, 5. So they have, they have done all these good works. Just to recap, they are doctrinally sound. This church is doctrinally discerning. They have good teachers. They have good doctrine. They know their theology. And not only are they doctrinally sound, they do good works. They're not just teaching oriented. They do good things. They bless their neighbors. They serve their neighbors. They give to, to causes. They make their neighborhoods a better place. They do good works and they're tireless in doing good works. They endure and do it. They don't, they don't get really excited. Let's go do this ministry for two weeks and they, they sputter out. They keep doing it and they continue in doing it. Not only that, they're getting persecuted by people from the outside and they're suffering for Jesus and they're not even growing weary. They're like, we could suffer all day for Jesus. We're devoted to Jesus. Well, when you're devoted and you're dying to yourself and you're discerning and you're doctrinal and you're doing a lot of good deeds and you're a doer and not a hearer only, that's a pretty good church it looks like, right? Not only that, also in this book, they're doing discipline. They cannot tolerate evil people. When when someone is unrepentant in their midst, one of their members, they'll actually discipline them out of the church. Seems like a healthy church. We talk about healthy church a lot around here. This seems like one of those. And yet verse four says, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. And then he says in verse five, remember then how far you've fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will remove your lampstand from your place unless you repent. So two times you get the command. What is the command? Repent. King Saul was told to repent. King David was told to repent. The church at Ephesus is told to repent. You're told to repent. This morning, God is calling you to repent. Repent of what? Verse four, you have abandoned your first love. You have abandoned the love you had at first. You don't love God and you don't love people the way you used to. Now, I don't know all of you. I'm saying this as a general thing to this church body, right? You don't love God and you don't love people the way you used to, the way you first did when you became a Christian or the way you did earlier on. Maybe not when you first became a Christian. Some of you grew up in a Christian home and you don't remember when you became a Christian, which is a good thing. That's a good blessing. But you can remember seasons in your life where you loved God and it wasn't because of other people. It wasn't because of your family, your friends, your church. But there was a passion inside, literally directly from heaven, where the love of God was overwhelming your heart that you couldn't help but love him back and love other people. And it just flowed. You couldn't even contain People could ask you to do something crazy and you would have signed on the dotted line in a heartbeat back then. That's where you were. That was the love you had at first or previously, initially. And now you have abandoned that love. God is telling you, telling us. And so the call is to repent, to acknowledge it as sin, to be convicted by it, to ask God for forgiveness for it, and to turn away from it. That's the call in this passage. Repent from the sin of losing your first love, of leaving your first love, so that Jesus doesn't remove our church. Now, I get we have four reasons why you need to repent. The first one was um, you need to repent because of what you've done. You've left your first love. And I just told you about leaving your first love. That is the sin that we are repenting of. If you are a church, your job is to receive the love of Christ. That's always first. It's not what you do. It's what you receive. It's what you trust. That's always step one. 
trust and receive the love of God. And then step two, and it's always step two, don't mix these up. Then you love in response. Love God, love people as a response to God's love. And if you don't do that as a church, you can teach all the right Bible teaching you want. You can discipline all the unrepentant sinners from your church that you want. You can suffer from people pressuring you to renounce your Christianity. You can hold on to Christ as long as you want. And you could do all the good deeds in really helping people. So people say, man, if that church went out, we would miss that church. You can do all that and miss the point. Because the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. I have more here, Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 5. Um, the reason you, you discern false teaching is to love God. You can listen to the sermon from last week, get a CD, or listen online if you want. But Jesus tells us how, in this first reason, how do we repent? If we're going to repent because we've abandoned our first love, that's reason number one why we repent. How do we do it? He gives us three steps in verse 5. Look at verse 5 again. What does verse 5 say? Three actions. Remember then how you how far you've fallen. So remember, and then what? Repent, and then the third one is what? Do the works you did at first. Return. That's a nice sermon if you just want to, If I was just doing verse 5, that would be my three-point sermon. Remember, repent, and return. We're doing all seven, so that's not the, the sermon point, but that's, that's verse 5. Remember where you were before, your love for God, your passion for Jesus. Remember how, like Mark thir- Matthew 13, 44, the kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a, in a field where the man stumbled upon it. When he found it, he buried it again. And then he sold everything he had. And in his, or in his joy, not out of, oh, I got to sell everything I have. Like, he gladly sold everything he had to buy that field. That's what you did when you came to Christ. That's actually how you become a Christian. That's, that's the, well, that's the fruit of repentance and faith. That's the expression of faith, saving faith, justifying faith. You entrust God and the value that Christ has, that his kingdom has, that you're willing to sell everything to have it. You'll sell everyone. You'll, you'll give up everyone. You'll give up everything to have Jesus. That's, that's conversion. That's how you became a Christian. That's when you became a Christian. And John here, Jesus is telling us, remember that. Remember what it was like for you. And then return to that initial love. We'll talk about repentance more, so let me just go to return. Remember, repent, and return. Return to that initial love. What do you mean return to this love? Have you ever been on a church camp or church retreat? Anyone raise your hand? Yeah. Have you, have you ever got a camp high? A spiritual high? Yeah. How many of you think those spiritual highs are worthless? Raise your hand. Okay. I wouldn't be surprised if someone raised their hand, but none of you did. I'm glad you didn't. I, I used to really like those spiritual highs, and I used to be really skeptical of it, and now I like them again. Okay. So if you're on either side, I mean, I would have sided with you at some point in my life either way. Now, I was skeptical because that high would last for, what, a month, two months, and then you get back into school. Well, I was, I was going to camp when I was in school. You go back into regular rhythm, and then you lose it. And you thought, man, that was worthless. And then you go to camp, and everyone's like, man, you got to keep this high for the rest of your life. And I'm like, well, you know, forget this camp high. But that's not really the case. The reason why you get a high, generally when you go there, is because you're away from the distracting pleasures of this world and the rhythms of your life. It's easier to be sensitive to God when you're not at home and at work and at school and doing the regular rhythms because there's a droning effect of the day in and day out that almost inevitably numbs you to being sensitive to the goodness and loveliness of God. And when you lose that and you get numb to that, 
your heart gets hard and there are no spiritual highs rarely and spiritual lows generally. Okay? And so retreats are good because it clarifies, at least for a moment, what life is about. Then you go back into the world and you slowly forget, right? And so they're, they're good because they're good signposts to remember. But what I want to tell you, what I want to encourage you with here is that Jesus is not telling you you need to go to camp or retreat to, to return. He's telling you, you can return. You can have a personal revival of the soul. Life, fresh life, re-infused into your soul. A fresh passion, a refreshed passion for God today if you'll repent. Remember, repent, and return to Jesus. Now, Sundays are not pep rallies, so not every Sunday I'm going to give you a pep rally, but this is a pep rally type sermon in the sense, right? To, to return to your first love. And so we need to, we need to, we need to feel that. You don't need, you don't need, you'll do yourself damage if you hear this text and say, oh yeah, I'm familiar with this text, and not expect or ask God desperately on your knees to revive your soul. If you don't do that after this, you don't get it. You're supposed to feel a desperation of how callous my heart and your heart is, how, how hard our hearts are, where we're desperately crying out, revive me, Lord. Revive us as a church. Help us not forget. So I'd encourage you to take a break from the little good things that destroy passionate, focused, undivided devotion to Jesus. Listen to this quote by John Piper. This is from the book, A Hunger for God. He says, the greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It is not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It's not the X-rated video, but the primetime dribble of triviality we drink in every night. This is before smartphones. You can take it. You can just, you know, add smartphones into that triviality you dribble that you, you nibble at every night. For all the ill that Satan can do, when God describes what keeps us from the banquet of his love, it is a piece of land, a yoke of oxen, and a wife. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. Wow. Distractions of this world, the good gifts of God that are meant to point us to God, the joy in your gifts that point you to joy in God, terminate on the gifts and not the ultimate gift, God himself, and you lose your first love. So break your pattern this week. Some of you can't take a vacation. I'm not telling you to take a vacation tomorrow necessarily. But figure out, if you're going to apply even just point one before we move on, what are you going to, what are you going to drop this week? There's something you have scheduled this week to do that you normally do every week. You need to not do something that you normally do this week in order to focus on God. Think about some dribble, some little worldly, not necessarily simple. It could be a good gift of God. Something that you normally enjoy this week that you're not going to enjoy this week. You need to clear your head. You need to get away even while you're still here. So figure it out. This week, schedule to not do something so you can focus on God and prayer and, and the trials of your life and applying God's word into the trials of your life lest you drift in losing your first love. That's the first reason why we need to 
repent is because we have done loveless good works and we've missed the whole point. That's number one. Number two, second reason to repent is because of what you may lose. What might you lose in verse five? Otherwise, if you don't repent, Jesus will come and remove what? The lampstand. The church has the spirit of God to be the light of God in God's world. That's why we're here. We're not here to take up offerings. We're not here to just hold meetings. We're not here to fight about different little things of how to do church. We are here to shine the light of God in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit in love to the world. That's why we're here. And if you don't love God and love people, you're not shining as a light. And if you don't repent, Christ will remove your light. The way he removed the light from Saul. Not that you could lose your salvation. At least not here at this point. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying you could lose your salvation. But um, my point here is that you could lose the light. This church can meet for the next 50 years and have no Holy Spirit power pulsing in its veins. And God forbid that happened. But that happens. The church can go out or the church can continue to exist without any Holy Spirit power. And so Christ says, you better repent or else you can keep thinking you're doing church. But the Holy Spirit's not here. There's no power. There's no light. That light is supernatural. Now, why is this sin so serious that it threatens the church's existence? Because the church exists as light. And out, the, the, the thing that distinguishes this group of people from other groups of people who are friends is our love for one another. Right? That's what John 13, 34 and 35 says. Jesus said, a new command I give to you, love one another just as I have loved you. By this, all men will know. Non-Christians will know. They'll see the light. They're in darkness. They see something that they don't normally see. They will know that you're my what? Disciples. By your love for one another. If you don't love each other with the love of God as a reflection of loving God into loving each other and then into loving your neighbors, you are not distinct from the world. There is no saltiness. There is no shine. And so Christ says, if you will not repent, you will be removed as a church from being my lampstand and my light in this world. And so, therefore, we must repent. And that's where we stopped last week. Okay? Now, before we get to reason number three, why we need to repent. So reason number one, repent because you've left your first love, even though you've been doing a lot of good stuff. Number two, repent because if you don't, you will your lampstand will be removed. Or to make it shorter, repent because your lampstand might be removed. Third, before we get to the third reason, praise Jesus that he gives us some encouragement. Because this could sound really heavy, right? Verse 6, he gives us more encouragement. Verse 6 says, yet you do have this, you hate what? You hate the works or the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also, ta- which I also hate. What are the Nicolaitans' works? I don't know. Okay, that's a short answer. I don't know what they are. I'll give you a better guess in two, in, in two sermons on Revelation when it's, t- when it's picked up again later in the chapter, okay? But here's the point right now. They hate something, which means they're not emotionless. To love something, to truly love something, is to hate the things that will attack it. Love and hate exist together, and you can't have one without the other. If you truly love and value something, you will hate the thing that attacks that value. Just by, by if, if it's real love, if you really care about it. Now, if I don't care about this tissue box and you destroy the tissue box, I'm not going to care because I don't value it, right? If you start attacking one of my children physically, 
I'm going to care because I value them. And when you truly value something, you hate what attacks it. And so they're not emotionless. I don't want you to hear Revelation 2 as an emotionless church. They're very passionate for the truth. They're very passionate for right practices. And they are passionate against false practices. But their passion has become personless. It's in principles. I got a passion for principles. I got a passion for practices. I got a passion for ways things are done. I don't have a passion for people or for God as a person. And when you lose that, you lose your first love. But but he does encourage you here. The encouragement is, hey, you guys are not emotionless. There's clearly grace in your in your church. But if you don't repent, the threat still stands. I will remove your lampstand. Okay, but there's a little bit of encouragement. You guys are, I'm not saying you, but here at the church at Ephesus, you're not emotionless. You do hate certain practices, and that's a good thing. You're right to do that. You just need to return to your first love. Okay, third reason why you need to repent is because you'll eat from the tree of life. Look at chapter, look at verse 7. What will you eat? You'll eat from the tree of life. Look at chapter 2, verse 7, the second half. To the one who conquers, I will give him the right to eat from where? From the tree of what? Tree of life, which is where? Where's this tree of life? In the paradise of God. Now, this tree is in the paradise of God. Where do you remember the tree of life in the story of the Bible? The garden of Eden, right? There's Adam and Eve in the garden. There's a tree of knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat this tree because in the day you eat of it, you will certainly die. There's another tree called the tree of life. When Adam and Eve ate the fruit and they found out they were naked, God clothed them. He promised that there would be a redeemer to come. And then he kicked them out of the garden. He separate, he exiled them. He banished them from his garden and from his presence. And why? It says in very interesting in Genesis three, it says, if he, if he eats from the tree of life, he will live forever. And so to make sure he doesn't eat from the tree of life and live forever, he banishes them out of the garden. So the tree of life, if you get to eat from this tree, you get to live forever. And so if you conquer, or it says here, to the one who conquers, I will give him the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The paradise of God is where God lives. That's the place where God dwells. That's why temples were the places where God dwelt. Now, in Ephesus, there was a temple to Artemis, Artemis of the Ephesians, if you remember from Acts chapter 19. There's a temple there. Now, where that temple was built, before that temple was built there, there was a shrine tree there. There's a tree shrine. There's a special tree with a shrine around it, that's that's where they believed where where God where this God lived, and so they built a temple on the place where that tree shrine was. So you have a close connection between the tree and the place where God lives in Ephesus, and we have that same connection in the Garden of Eden. That the the tree of life is in the garden where God walks among His people, and you have this also. Keep your finger in Revelation two. Turn to the back of your Bible. Go to Revelation twenty two. Look at Revelation 22. Look at Revelation 22, verse 2. The middle of the verse 2. This is speaking of the new heavens and the new earth from Revelation 21 that comes down from heaven. What's going to be in this new earth? In verse 2, the tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing its 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for what? are for healing the nations and there will no longer be any curse. In other words, there will be a feasting on the tree of life. There is no more. You can't eat from it. There will be the tree of life. 
it's a tree, but it's along the line of a river. There's access to it, and you get to eat from the tree of life and enjoy eternal life with God in the paradise of God, the new heavens and the new earth, on the new earth with God in this paradise. Now, going back to chapter 2, verse 7, this tree is in the paradise of God. You enjoy eternal life in the paradise of God. This is important because in Ephesus, remember Ephesus was an asylum-type city. People can go there when they commit crimes, and they could actually be um, – they, they don't have to face consequences for the crime. So that's where that, they could do that there. And so um, there was criminal organizations that were running out of Ephesus. And so for some criminals, they thought, hey, this is kind of paradise. Like you could do bad stuff and get away with it. Is that true paradise? Is that Would that make a true paradise in this world if there are no consequences for crime? No, right? So there's a contrast here between Ephesus and the true paradise of God. Because in God's paradise where you eat it from the tree of life, it's real paradise. Because no one will ever be self-centered and selfish towards you. There will be no crime. There will be no curse. Everyone will love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you will enjoy God together forever. It is a real paradise. And that's given to who? Going back to chapter 2, verse 7. Who's that given to? To the one who what? Verse 7. To the one who? Conquers. What's another translation? To the what? Overcomer. One more translation. Persevere. It begins with a V. Does anyone have it with a V? To the victor. Right To the victor who wins, to the conqueror, to the overcomer, he gets to eat from the tree of life. What is a conqueror? Someone who overcomes and conquers and is victorious over Satan, sin in their own lives, sin in their church, the lovelessness of their church, and going against the world as they, as they make Christ known in the world. If you conquer sin in your own life, sin in your church, sin in the world, and Satan, you are a conqueror and you get to eat from the tree of life. And if you don't conquer, the tree of life is not for you. The tree of life is for the conqueror. The one who trusts Christ so much and lives by the power of the Spirit of God with a heavenly love that flows through them that they conquer sin in their lives, among their church family, in their neighborhoods, in the world, and even against Satan himself. We'll talk about conquering more because that's in every one of these seven letters. But here's an application. Children. All right, children, listen up. You, you know this. You've heard this before. You're not born a Christian because your parents are Christian, right? If you, if my, my wife, her parents were born in Mexico. My parents were born in the Philippines. So some people say my kids are half Filipino and half Mexican-American. So some might say, oh, are you half, if, if, your, if your mom is Buddhist and your dad's a Christian, then maybe you're half Christian, half Buddhist. No, it doesn't work that way. It's not an ethnic thing. It's not a a biological thing. If you're going to be a Christian, it is not by your parents becoming Christian. You don't become a conqueror just because you're born into a family where your parents are conquerors. You too have to repent from your sin and trust in Jesus. You too have to repent from losing your first love. You have to conquer sin in your life by the grace of God. You have to overcome sin in this world and in the church and Satan himself and the demons that tempt us to sin. You have to overcome. But I'm just a kid. Trust in Jesus. Call out to God for help because Christ died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead. You can overcome and you must. You must. Now, if you're a church member, what does this mean for us? We are called to overcome. We are called to conquer. This means, church family, you are called to courage. You're called to fight and conquer sin 
in our church, in other churches, in the world, in Satan, in the beast, in all the demons who will tempt us to sin throughout our lives and the lives of those around us, we are called to battle. We are called to conquer. So we, we must trust in Christ. We must take the gospel, internalize it ourselves, be gospelized, and then we must gospelize in the power of Christ and in partnership with our church family. You know what's the opposite of conquering? I'll read it to you. Look at Revelation 21, 7 and 8. Or just listen. Revelation 21, 7 and 8. To the one who conquer, or to the, the conqueror will inherit these things. And I will be his God and he will be my son. But the cowards, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. What's the opposite of courage? What's the opposite of being a conqueror? Being a what? Coward. What's the opposite of being courageous? Cowering. Christianity is not for cowards. If you're a coward and you won't repent from leaving your first love and and love with courage, love God with courage, love people with courage, even when they're mad at you and they criticize you or they oppose you, then you're a coward. And the cowards go to the lake of fire. It's the conqueror, the overcomer who eats from the tree of life. And we read, it's the tree of life on both sides of the river. So so here, Jesus takes individual members as conquerors, not the whole church. So, so kids, just like I told you, you're not Christian because your parents are. Church members, get this. You're not a conqueror just because you're in a church of conquerors. Notice he's speaking to the churches, but here he says, to the one who conquers. It's individual here. Salvation is individual. There's a, once, there's a single turnstile, and you only get in by your own faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. You cannot hang on to your spouse's faith. You cannot hang on to your pastor's faith. You cannot hang on to your church member's faith. You cannot hang on to your parents' faith. Faith, You must conquer because the one who conquers eats from it. And, if, and so the call to us as a, as a church is we need to realize that there can be false Christians in churches, right? We're Baptists. We believe in regenerate church membership. Not all members of a church are regenerate. And that's why we practice church discipline. So you need to conquer in loving God and loving people in the power that God supplies in Christ. Now, would you, am I, now you're like, hold on. Are you saying that if someone doesn't love God, that they're going to hell? Is that what I'm saying? That if they don't love God and overcome and conquer in loving God, that they're going to hell? Is that, is that what this text is saying? Look at 1 Corinthians 16, 22. It does not get more serious than verses like 1 Corinthians 16, 22. You could pray right now that I could sort of communicate the weight of this verse because it's humanly impossible to communicate the weight of this verse. And I will for sure be inadequate. First Corinthians 16, 22. What does it say? If anyone does not love the Lord, What? A curse beyond him. Maranatha, our Lord, come. If you do not love Jesus, you are going to hell. That's what it says. If anyone does not love the Lord, a curse beyond him. You're going to hell if you don't love Jesus. That's what the text says, right? What does Ephesians 6, 24 say? Grace are to all those who love the Lord. Um, 
Grace to those who love the Lord Jesus. Grace flows to those who love the Lord Jesus. Now, you're not earning grace, but still, that, that, that verse stands. It's clear, right? If you do not repent and return to your first love, you will not eat from the tree of life. Because you will not lose your salvation. You can't lose your salvation. You will prove that you never really were Christian. If you're just playing the Christian game, if you're just playing the church game, then you are going to hell. Because you cannot fool God. You can fool us. You can fool me. You cannot fool God. And you will burn in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur forever if you don't love God. You'll burn. And 80 billion ages from now, it'll be like you just got there. Because you burn forever. The curse doesn't quit. It doesn't stop. The curse continues on and on and on and on and on. And when you think after 80 billion ages of years that you're almost at the end, you've only just begun forever. Isn't this what Jesus says in Matthew 10? Matthew 10, 37 to 39. He says, I'll, I'll read it to you. Matthew 10, 37 to 39, same theme here is why we need to repent. It says in Matthew 10, 37, the one who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The one who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Do you love other people more than Jesus? You love your wife more than Jesus? Do you love your husband more than Jesus? Do you love your health more than Jesus? Do you love your kids more than Jesus? Your possessions, your future, your plans, your church? Your agenda? You're not worthy of Jesus then. You're not a Christian. You're a fake. First John 4. First John 4, 7 to 21. Turn there. First John 4, 7 to 21. There's a long passage, but I'm going to read all seven verses 7 to 21. I want you to feel the, the necessity of loving God if you're really a Christian. And not just loving God, loving people. Both are tied in this passage. Listen, 1 John 4, 7. Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God. And everyone who loves has been what? Born of God. If you're born of God, what do you do? You love and knows God. The one who does not love does not know who? God. Why? Because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son. Here's the gospel into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice, the propitiation, the wrath bearer, the substitute for our sins. That's love. That's where it starts. It doesn't start with you. It starts with God and the gospel coming down to you and Christ coming for you. Verse 11, dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we must what? We must what? Love one another. You don't have the option. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God what? Remains or abides in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we remain in him and he in us. This is how we know we're a Christian. He has given us his what? Spirit, and we have seen and testify that the Father sent the Son as the world's Savior. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, 
That's true confession. That's right doctrine. God remains in him and he in God. And we have come to know and to believe that, believe the love that God has for us. God is love. The one who remains in love remains in God and God remains in him. Verse 17. In this love is made complete with us so that we have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears is not complete in love. Listen to verse 19. We love, why? Because he what? He first loved us. If anyone says, here, right here, we're saying we love God. If anyone says, I love God, but what? And yet hates his brother or sister, he's a what? Liar. Liar. That's what God's saying to you. You're a liar. Stop lying. Stop saying you love me if you don't love your brother. Here, in this church, I'm talking about specific names, right? We got 68 members in our church. I'm talking about specific people here. Do you love your fellow members here? Them. Not just love one another in general vague terms. We got 68 members in this church. When you think about their names, do you love them the way Christ loved you? If you don't, you're a liar and you don't love God. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother or sister, he's a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister, whom he has seen, cannot love who? God, whom he has not seen. And this is the command we have from him. The one who loves God must also love his brother or sister. If you do not love your brother or sister in this church and outside this church, other Christians, and you see them and you don't love them, you don't love God. You can't love God. It's impossible. And so if you will not repent of leaving your first love, you will not eat of the tree of life. Does that make sense? Now, why is this so important to Christianity? Why is this so particular for Christianity? Here's why. Think about the story of the Bible. Some people look at the story of the Bible like this. God created the world. He's the creator. He's the Lord of all. He creates the world and says, go bear my image, right? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Go do that, obey me. So here people come out into the world they um, they love God. They try to reflect him in this world, but they fail. And so what does God do? He sends his son, who is the Lord of all. Jesus comes and restores the kingship. He restores his place as king. He gets followers under him, disciples who are sold out, and so that they obey everything he does. And they even suffer for him, and they teach for him, and they, they tell his doctrine, and they do everything he says, and they discipline their community, and they do good deeds in the world. And then when Jesus comes again, he takes all of his servants. And he gives them the kingdom and says, now we get to reign and rule as the the military party that won the war. Let's celebrate. Some people look at the story of the Bible like that. And everything I said there is actually true. But there's a problem with that story. You can never really love God who is essentially just the ruler, king and lord. That's a true story that I just told of, of God's lordship. But that's not the central story. And when you get a part of the story and you make it the whole story, you get a distorted story and you get a different God. Why? Muslims could do that story. Right? I mean, maybe not with a Jesus coming, but yeah, God is Lord. I'm supposed to obey him. Whatever he tells me to do, I'll do it. I'll even die for him. And then I get to celebrate with him. Right? I have to love people. Hindus can do that story. Buddhists can do this. Any religious group, any group that wants to go around any cause, any of them could do that story. There's nothing distinctly Christian about that story. 
God is the creator and we must obey him. But if you get the story, if you get the center of the story right, God is not fundamentally Lord. He is Lord. But before God ever created anything, what was he? This is what I teach my kids in our catechism. We had to make up a catechism question for this because it wasn't in our, in our catechism, our Baptist catechism. Who is God? And my child might say, God is the father, loving and giving life to his son in the fellowship of his spirit who is in himself love. God who is in himself love. God is fundamentally the father of, of the son in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. God is Trinitarian. In other words, at the center of who God is, is love between father, son, and Holy Spirit. So now how do you tell the story? God created the world. He's the father. He, he creates a world to glorify his son. They rebel against this father. And so, so now he has to send his son and now his son has to die for them so that he could re-adopt them back into his family so that they could celebrate as a family. And so now this, these family members who are redeemed start telling other people that the adoption process is still going on and that if they come to God through Christ and repent from their sins and trust in him, they can rejoin the family. And then when Christ comes again and we reign on this earth as kings, we don't just reign on this earth as kings, we reign on this earth as a family with love for each other. That's the center of it that's the center of the story is that god is father loving and giving life to his son and that produces love in the church and if you don't have love in your life you're telling a different story about god you might as well tell a different religious story about god at that point because you have just destroyed or denied in your actions of losing your first love the trinitarian nature of god as a god of love and so that's why this is very very important that we get this right because if you don't repent of losing your first love then you will not eat from the tree of life and the last point that's reason number three so let's recap four reasons to repent from leaving your first love reason number one is because you have obeyed god without love reason number two is because your lampstand might be removed if you don't repent reason number three why you must repent is because if because you will eat from the tree of life if you do repent and you want to do that and lastly number four why should you repent because of who's commanding you who's commanding us in revelation 2 verse 7 says let let anyone who has ears to hear listen to who listen to what the spirit says to the churches why should we repent because who's speaking to us in verse 7 who the holy spirit but is, you, is the Spirit the only one speaking to us? What about verse 1? Write to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Thus says the one who what? Holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Who's that? Jesus. So why should you repent? Because the Spirit is telling you to repent. Because Jesus is telling you to repent. And really those are not, I mean, they are two different persons, but they are one. Because there is one God. Right? Three in one. The Spirit is in the Son and the Son in the Spirit. So much so that in Revelation 5, 6, it says that the, the Son, the Lamb, has seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. In that, in that picture, the, the, the eyes of Jesus are the Spirit, is the Holy Spirit. Okay, so what's the fourth reason to obey? Because Jesus is Lord of your life and Jesus is Lord of this church. Okay, that's the fourth reason why you need to repent from losing your first love. What does Jesus do in verse 1? Revelation 2, 1, what does he do? What does he hold in his hand? 
the seven stars. And what are the stars? They are the what? The churches or the angels of the churches. And he walks among the lampstands, which are the churches. He holds the stars, which means he's Lord over the angels of the churches. He's Lord over the churches because he controls it. He holds it. He walks among the lampstands. If he walks among them, then he's present, right? He's here in this church. He's in the churches. He knows what's going on in the churches. He's closely connected to this church. And so because of that, he calls us to love him and love people. Do you remember John 21, 15 to 17? This is Jesus already rose from the dead and Peter denied Christ three times. And they're there at the Sea of Galilee and they're eating. And Jesus says, hey, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, Lord, you know. He says, do you love me? Or do you love me? Lord, you know. Feed my sheep. And then a few minutes pass by, maybe or a few seconds, and Jesus says, Hey, Peter, do you love me? Just ask me that. You know, every, you know, you, you know the answer to that. Tend my lambs. Okay. Another few seconds go by. Hey, Peter, I got a question for you. Do you love me? Peter, discouraged at this point. Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep. If you love Jesus, you'll feed his sheep. It's not just for pastors, not just for leaders. That's gospelizing, right? You'll give people Jesus. You'll love them with the love of Christ, with the word of Christ. That's what happens if you love Jesus. You will feed his sheep. So we're called to love God and love people in word and deed. It has to be the overwhelming priority of our lives. But let's close with this. This is a little discouraging. <laughs> I mean, we can't. How do I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? How are you guys doing with that this week? How are you going to do this coming week in loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Our hearts are clipped. Our hearts are distracted. Our hearts are callous. As the, as the hymn says, our hearts are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We cannot love as we ought. And because we cannot love as we ought, we deserve to be cut off from his love. We deserve the curse. We deserve to be cut off from his blessing. We deserve for our light to be cut off, not for 20 years or a life sentence, but for eternity. We have not, and we cannot, even as Christians in the power of the Holy Spirit, we have not and we cannot love God the way we ought to love God, and we cannot love people the way we ought to love people. We haven't. And when we do for a brief season of our lives, we can't sustain it, right? It burns out. It drops out too quickly. We can't love the way you're telling us to love, God. We can't do it. But there's someone who has. There's someone who can. There's someone who did. Jesus said in John 14, 31, he said, the world may know that I love the Father. I do as the Father commanded me. There's someone who loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength and did everything God commanded him to do, even dying on the cross for our sin. I mean, look, John, he didn't just love God, he loved people. John 15 verse 10 says this, if you keep my commands, you'll remain in my love just as I kept my father's command and remain in his love. I remain in his love, the son says to the father. Listen to verse 13. No one has greater love than this that a man lays down his life for his what? Friends. Who did Jesus lay down his life for? For us. Does he love us? Yes. Does he love God? Yes. Does he love God with all heart, soul, mind, and strength? Yes. Does he love his neighbor as himself? Yeah. Jesus did what we could never 
do. Even go back to Revelation 1.5. It says this. To him who loves us and set us free from our sins. Jesus loves us. He never leaves the love he had at first. He never abandons it. He never loses his first love. He never did. He never will. But he was treated like he did. If your lampstand is removed and your light is removed from your life, I would argue, I think that's even a hint at that you're not even really saved. Okay? As we're talking about with not eating from the tree of life. Well, Jesus was light removed from him. The one who never stopped loving, the one who perfectly loved, was, was light removed from him. Do you remember when he was on the cross? And from noon to three, he was hanging in what? Darkness. The judgment of God, the darkness of God, the lampstand removed from Jesus, the light removed from Jesus, and he hangs in darkness as if he had lost his first love. And he never did. And because of that, because he, he, because light was removed from him, we can now love God. We can now shine for Jesus imperfectly as we do. Amen? The greatest unkindness you can do to God is to refuse to believe that he loves, that he, that he loves you. That's what John Owen argued, according to Michael Reeves. The greatest thing, if you forget God's love for you in the nitty-gritty particular situations of your life, then that's the greatest harm you could do to your own life is to stop believing in that moment that God loves you. So what does it mean for non-Christians? If you're not a Christian here this morning, I'm calling you to receive God's love. Christ died on the cross for sinners like us. He rose from the dead. We're all sinners who deserve hell. If you're not a Christian, you can receive God's love today. You're like, well, I don't know if I could love God perfectly. You can't. Don't look for the power from within. Look at Jesus. And so I move. So if you're not a Christian, repent this morning and trust in Jesus. Now, if you are a Christian, let me say, I already said it, but let me say it again. If you're a Christian, brothers and sisters, look up here for a second. I don't want you to look, focus on yourself as you're trying to love God now. That would be to distort the whole message. Do you remember what, what Jesus, what, what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2? He says, run the race of faith, fixing your eyes on Jesus. When you run, don't look at your feet. Don't look at your arms. Is my feet working right? Is my arms working right? If you do that, you're going to run into a fence or something, right? You'll run into something if you're not looking where you're going. You keep your eyes forward as you run. As we've been talking about losing our first love, one of the mistakes you might make is you keep looking, am I loving God right now? What can I do? You know, you can keep looking at your own ways to grow in love. That's not what you need to do. You need to look at Jesus because he is the expression of God's love, right? And when you see Jesus and you sense the love of God by faith, in the power of the Holy Spirit, as you sense the love of God, as you're looking at Jesus, trusting in Jesus, he will transform you to love God more and more. So don't focus on yourself. Not too long, at least. Look at yourself, repent from it, and then keep your eyes on Jesus. Or like Richard Sipp says, I love this. For every one look at yourself, take ten looks at Jesus. That's sweet. For every one look at yourself, take ten looks at Jesus. As a church, what does this mean? We need to love one another. We need to deal with each other in disagreement. When we sin against each other, let's forgive each other. When we sin against each other, let's confront each other in love. Let's receive rebuke. Let's, let's forgive each other and let's keep on loving one another. Brothers and sisters, this church is never going to be completely harmonious because we're still sinners. We've got to keep dealing with it. it does, it's not like you never, we never get over it. We could get over every situation, then the next one comes, and the next one comes. And that's okay. We're family. Let's get through this together. 
Let's love each other. Let's forgive each other. Let's, let's be straightforward and confront each other. Let's use the Bible. Let's repent before each other. Let's ask forgiveness from each other. That's how we shine for Jesus Christ in this world. You know, the church at Ephesus did a good job of repenting, at least according to church history. And they, they were not removed, at least not according to a church history letter by Ignatius a few or many decades later. They seem to have turned it around. So in summary, repent from leaving your initial love. Why? What are the four reasons? Because you've obeyed without love. Number two, because your lampstand might be removed. Number three, because you eat from the tree of life. You will eat from the tree of life. And number four, because Jesus is Lord over you and your church. If you fail to repent, you will suffer delusion, removal, famine, misleading, and death. You'll be deluded because your good deeds and doctrine won't save you. You'll be removed from shining. You'll be in a famine and you'll be promoting a famine in this church because everyone in this church is hungry for Jesus. And when you're not loving God, you're not giving them Jesus. You'll mislead your neighbors in terms of what they think Christianity is. And in the end, you'll have eternal death if you don't repent. Now, if you do repent, you will enjoy love, light, and life. You'll enjoy joy. You'll enjoy joy in God. You'll love God. You'll shine as a light. We will shine as a light in this world. And we will enjoy the tree of life forever and ever and ever. Therefore, brothers and sisters, repent from lovelessness and return to joy in our Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your providence in how you wanted to medit- us to meditate on this, not for one Sunday, but for two. We don't know why, but we trust your providence and your control over these things. And we pray that we would repent from leaving our first love. Forgive us for making excuses and getting so comfortable and normalizing lovelessness that we could scarcely feel the sin. We pray that all of our members, that grace would flow to those who love the Lord Jesus Christ. And even if there's a little flicker of true love for you, supernatural, heavenly love from you, we pray that you'd fan it into a flame. For those who don't have it, that they would repent even now and trust in Christ and receive your love that they might enjoy spreading that love. Now, Lord, as we focus on the Lord's Supper and remember the death of Christ and your love, we pray that you'd continue to stoke a fire in our hearts for your love. In Jesus' name, amen.